0: Can I please Romans chapter 5 and Ephesians, also known as what? Very good, Laodiceans, chapter 2. Thanks, Al. The note, good, Uh, very encouraging. Take a couple moments. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to gaze as in a glass, as in a mirror, beholding the image of the Lord. That we may be transformed to another degree of glory into that image, and therefore to bear his image before this world and before people, before one another. We ask these, we thank you for this, and grant us the grace now to make the most of an opportunity and a door that you've opened that no one can shut. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, the question was asked twice, where is boasting then? Last night, where boasting is, identifying it in Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We also boast in our difficulties because those difficulties actually Firm up our eschatological expectations, our expectation of glory. Because we partake and participate in the downward trajectory of our Lord Jesus Christ in his first mission, a martyrological downward trajectory in this life, we are by that very experience. All the more assured that we will partake of his upward trajectory, bodily resurrection, ascension into a glorious state, and to reign with him also. Now we, Now I'm asking, and have been sort of throughout our time, where is the kit condition? Where is the condition? Where is the condition to be met by helpless humankind? or by any individual at any time in order to appropriate salvation? My answer to that question is it is nowhere. That condition is nowhere. There is no condition stipulated by God to man for mankind to appropriate justification as it's called, or Salvation. Therefore, the very term saving faith, as far as humanity goes, is nowhere. Saving faith has no meaning. There's no, in fact, I could say there's no such thing as saving faith. There is a saving faithfulness. It belongs exclusively to Messiah Jesus. For we are justified or rescued unconditionally delivered by the faithfulness of Messiah, the sir, the single inclusive representative for all mankind. There is a saving faithfulness then. It is the faithfulness of Jesus, the righteous one, which is otherwise known as his obedience to the father. To the extent of death by crucifixion followed by resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, which is a saving act which occurred before any condition could be met by any sinful human. Galatians 3 declares, and Paul declares this, faith came when Christ came. Faithfulness came when Christ came. So there could not have been a condition of faith for justification met by people before Christ came, nor is there a condition that people can meet after Christ came because he met that condition himself on the cross. There is no decision made for Jesus with regard to salvation. There's a decision made by Jesus for you regarding salvation. And so as we have it in Romans 5, 8, when we were still sinners, and Romans 5, 6 adds, and ungodly. When we were still sinners and ungodly, Christ died. You say, well, you weren't even born when Christ died. No, but you were a part of the mass of humanity in Adam with a sinful ontology. And it was then at that moment that Christ died when we were still sinners. The word sinners there is significant because it's hamartolon and it means thoroughly sinful and in the language of reformation or at least Calvinistic theology or anthropology, totally depraved, radical human human, Incapacity is one way of putting it now, rational incapacity and ethical incapacity there's a great emphasis on ethics in paul 's gospel, and we find that from romans six one all the way through Romans eight fourteen a strong ethical christological ethic a pneumatological ethic empowered by the holy spirit the spirit who gave us life and we'll have a lot of time to hunker down on that topic while we continue in better call paul so where's the condition to be met by people when christ died and if by that act we are saved we are saved by that act of god in christ where is the condition i'm i'm posing this question to Western culture in general to the doctrines of men and to the dominant doctrine since the reformation of justification by faith. We're fighting a two front war here. We're fighting the war that Paul fought against teachers, specifically one teacher, a messenger from Satan whom he had to battle and he finally defeated in Romans and Romans 16:20 shows that to be parallel with the victory of the believers over Satan. So we're fighting that battle, a battle that fought Paul fought and his gospel brought forth a justification by an act of God, a righteousness by an act of God in Christ and a salvation through the fidelity of the righteous one, the Messiah. And that was over and against a salvation through Torah observance, beginning with circumcision for men and going on all the way to basically people becoming physically and by the letter of the law, Jews, and that's a false gospel. But the gospel, the other battlefront is trickier. We're now fighting a battlefront against the idea of a justification by human faith Justification by human belief over and against an unconditional salvation. We're fighting against a conditional contractual understanding of the gospel over and against an unconditional covenantal rendition of the gospel with the added declaration that that is the gospel. And it's all about God's son. I want to illustrate this little by little. Where in Romans 3 is boasting? The teacher says this. There has to be some place of boasting if there's human capacity. But Paul recognizes there's radical human incapacity. So he says there is, boasting is excluded. It is radically It's out. It's shut out. It's a door shut that no man can open. And the door has been shut by God, by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, where is boasting then, asks this teacher in Romans 3.27, to which Paul replies, shut out. I use that word, it's a good baseball word, shut out. No score by the other team. More like a perfect game. Nobody does anything against it. It's 27 up and 27 down. 327 of Romans. 27 up, 27 down. Perfect game. Now, I've been resisting this so far, but I I don't want to resist it tonight because it's Thursday. So Thursday isn't anything goes night. I'm trying to think of a name for down where my mom lives in the condos, they have a thing called Thirsty Thursday. (laughs) And uh, my sisters and I always make every possible effort not to attend those Thursdays. So I don't know. Think of a word that's a good word for Thursday, but you tell me later, not right now. In a very excellent book called Beyond Old and New Perspectives, Douglas Campbell wrote an article himself ...called The Current Crisis, and I think in that article, he really does delineate the crisis of our time, and it's great. It's a fantastically important crisis. It's far greater than any ecological so-called crisis. It's far greater than any existential threats that face our nation. It is a theological crisis of proportions that are vast... When he wrote this, he said this, and I, pull, I selected a couple of quotes I think might help you in understanding what I'm trying to do here. He says, that is, in speaking about Romans 5.8, the son, that's Jesus, reached out to and was executed for humanity while it was still sinful and actively hostile to that loving and gracious act. this divine act consequently took place when no condition had been or could be met. That's extremely important. In my view, this divine act consequently took place when no condition had been or could be met. And we learn from this. He goes on to say that God does not conditionally act Toward humanity at all. God acts out of pure. Overflowing. Benevolence. That operates. Prior. To all human actions. Makes me think of he who began this good work in you will. Bring it to completion. That's on page 44. To select two more quotes, forty-four to forty-five, he went on to write this, and I hope you'll listen carefully because this is really a definitive article on his summary of the crisis of our time, theologically speaking, and therefore within the church and within the academy, as it's called, the theological academy. Incidentally, he quotes both Romans eight twenty-nine to thirty and Ephesians, better known to us as Laodiceans one three to fourteen, in that to show that God acts out of pure overflowing benevolence that operates prior to all human actions. Page 44 to 45, the same book, Beyond Old and New Perspectives, he went on to write this, God's relationship with humanity is fundamentally unconditional and benevolent. In more biblical parlance, it is covenantal. In theological and dogmatic terms, it is elective in the sense that especially that bart recovered so insightfully karl bart his name is pronounced it looks like barth but it's actually not pronouncing the h karl with a k bart perhaps the most famous protestant theologian of the 20th century a swiss theologian who was expelled from Germany in the uprise of Hitler. And he wrote a series of books called Christian or church dogmatics. And you can buy them fairly cheaply now, but there's 31 hardback volumes. So you've got room in the house. And I want to quote a couple things he said. I've, I've done it before, but I want to requote it because he's talking about election in the sense that Bart brought forth the doctrine of election, which in my view, again, is a radical correction of Calvinism, a radical correction of the Calvinistic doctrine of a double predestination. And you know what that's about a limited atonement and things like the perseverance of the saints for salvation. And I've always believed that my salvation is the result of the perseverance of Christ, which was exerted by him to the death of the cross followed by resurrection ascension, and enthronement. So he goes on to, let me say it again, God's relationship with humanity is fundamentally unconditional and benevolent. More biblical parlance is covenantal. In theological and dogmatic terms, it is elective in the sense especially that Barth recovered so insightfully. And that's church dogmatics. If you can go to a library and get that, just get volume two, part two of the doctrine of God and read, I read only the very bold print he has about 35 or 36 affirmations up to that point and I just read those because it's kind of a summary of all that he's going to say so that's like doing a book report by reading the back of the book you know kind of like but I don't really have time to read 31 volumes of Karl Barth half of which is in small print in between the larger print but he says Barth recovered, so uh, then I put this in caps. This Christological insight then must restructure all our soteriological categories. All of our, in other words, salvific doctrines have to be recalculated and restructured Christologically, not anthropologically where there's a condition to be met by me or by you, or by any individual, or by humanity at large, but Christologically, in which the condition was met by Jesus Christ, if there ever was one. And it's not really a condition, it's a mediation of God's act toward man through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit in what is now famously known as the PPME model of Paul's gospel, which is... Something we'll get into if I remember what they are, PPME. There's, there, I know it's participative, martyrological, and eschatological. Yeah, it's pneumatological, participative, martyrological eschatology. That kind of sums up Paul's gospel. But it ha, all of our salvation categories have to be restructured Christologically. Then he goes on to say, if necessary, purging them of their inappropriate contractual. Analogies. Contract, contract, you do this and I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That's not what the gospel is. And so, with regard to Barth, I picked up two of the affirmations that I think he may be referring to here about election when Barth radically corrected Calvin's doctrine. First of all, he says in affirmation 33, That's in the famous 2-2. This is uh, how seminary students, if you're going to seminary, you'd know this. 2-2, that's Karl Barth's Volume 2, Part 2 of the Doctrine of God. Affirmation 33, he says this, The election of grace is the eternal beginning of all the ways and works of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God, in his free grace, determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself he therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man with all its consequences and elects man to participation in his own glory that's a radical correction of calvin's doctrine affirmation 35 is even better because it has to do with human choice The man who is, I I quoted this before, I'm going to keep quoting it until you understand it and until Ricky memorizes it. I gave you, you probably already have, haven't you? Almost. Good. Affirmation 35. The man who is isolated over and against God, over against God, is as such rejected by God. Now, I'll stop there and tell you what I would say that means. God rejects the Adamic ontology. The Adamic ontology, which is human existence in the first man Adam under condemnation, is, in the words of a recent political speech, irredeemable. Adamic ontology is that which God declared war on, and I think principally it's found, it can be found in principle, in Amos 2.9. I will destroy the roots below and the fruit from above. At the cross, the Adamic ontology, also known as the flesh, was destroyed at the root. In our lives, when we participate in the fidelity of Christ and in his downward trajectory as well as his upward trajectory in an inaugural way but a real way the adamic ontology is destroyed in terms of its fruit from above and this explains a lot of passages like galatians 5:19 to 21 why the adamic ontology is under divine judgment and the adamic ontology does all the things that paul says People do who don't inherit the kingdom of God. They are all things outside of the kingdom of God. It does not say that there will ever be anyone that is expelled out of the kingdom of God eternally. That's not what Paul is talking about. So I'll go back to affirmation 35. The man who is isolated over against God is as such rejected by God. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. But the witness of the community of God to every individual man consists in this, that this choice of the godless man is void. That he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ. That the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is born by Jesus Christ. The other teacher's gospel and against Paul's gospel has everything to do with human deserving for those who doggedly search for glory and immortality and incorruption, eternal life for the selfless or the selfish self-seeking the wrath of God, wrath and anguish. That's his take. Bart has it right. So again, this choice of the godless man is void. That he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ and therefore is not rejected, but elected by God in Jesus Christ. That the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is born by Jesus Christ. And that he is appointed to eternal life with God on the basis of the righteous divine decision on the basis of the righteous and what is the righteous divine decision? The righteousness of God is the saving act of God in Christ toward his people, which is only right. I even heard today our president say, my number one duty is to protect the people of America. And that is the number one duty to protect the people of the nation. The King in Psalm 98 is righteous, therefore, in protecting his people and in acting in a way toward his people that is salvific, that rescues them, that doesn't go door to door to ask them if they've merited it or if they've deserved it or if they have loyalty or patriotism. It's the king's righteous act and his divine decision to save. So then the promise of his election determines that as a member of the community, he himself shall be a bearer of its witness to the whole world. If you don't believe that you better call Paul, see what he says about it, because if the epitome of a godless man who chose isolation from God, the decision to do that was rendered void. Was it not because he confronted the risen Messiah who was seen as, as having been crucified, bearing the marks of crucifixion. And at that moment, Paul realized, Saul of Tarsus realized, that his choice to be isolated from God as a godless individual had been rendered void. If it weren't rendered void, a whole lot of people would be going to what we would call hell. But God renders the decision Void. If you said to God, I'd rather go to hell than heaven, he renders your decision void. That decision doesn't mean anything. It's something in the wind. It's nothing in the wind. So then, he goes on to say, and the revelation of his rejection can only determine him to believe in Jesus Christ as the one by whom it has been born and canceled. Now, I would suggest something, but I'm first going to quote one more thing from Campbell. This comes right after 44 and 45 on page 45 of his article on the current crisis. He wrote the following with regard to the atonement. The atonement is, moreover, clearly an act that rescues, rather like the exodus. It lifts a helpless and wretched humanity out of its awful condition and transforms it. So Christ's incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. All of these are features of what we might call the Christ event. Christ's incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension are all vital aspects of salvation. And not just his death as tends to be the case in contractual schemes, in dying and rising, however, Christ also judges its sinful situation—the Adamic ontology. I would say, terminating and executing it. Indeed, the cross is where God's principal act of judgment against evil takes place. Of course, is what he says. Now with those quotes, I would suggest that just as the Exodus for Israel demonstrated the redemptive act of God in Christ for humanity. So the judgment on Egypt that went concurrent with that was a historical judgment demonstrating God's judgment on the enslaving powers of sin, death, and the flesh and principalities and powers as it kind of came to be a battle against the gods of the gods, gods of Egypt. Once again, I'll say this. I would suggest that just as the Exodus for Israel demonstrated the redemptive act of God in Christ for humanity. So the judgment on Egypt was a historical judgment demonstrating God's judgment on the enslaving powers of sin, death and, Principalities and powers and the Adamic ontology. These are the superhuman powers that once had humanity oppressed and enslaved. So I will announce to you tonight that I am a liberation theologian. I have a liberation theology. But it is not a liberation theology of culture or political kind, it is a liberation theology that reveals that Christ, God's act in Christ, has liberated us from the oppressive and enslaving superhuman powers of sin, of death, of the Adamic ontology, and of superhuman principalities and powers, or demonic beings. Now, I, I can already hear it. You know, now he's a liberation theologian (laughs) because they won't listen to the whole sentence. But Egypt, in fact, represents all of these enslaving and oppressive powers. So the act of God for Israel was liberative, just as the act of God in Christ and by the Spirit toward humanity is liberative could say I don't know if that's even a word but it is now so here is a true liberation theology it was for freedom that Christ freed us so don't be entangled again with the yoke of slavery that's your duty after salvation that not only includes what we so-called legalism But that includes not allowing any pleasure or habit in this life to have control over you. You can declare, and by the Holy Spirit's power, operate in a pneumatological participative ethic where nothing, no addiction, no habit, no self-destructive thought pattern, has control over you again. Doesn't mean you won't be in a battle. You will be. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I don't let anything have authority or control over me. All things may be, he says, quoting them facetiously, all things may be permitted, but not everything is expedient for me. So, God acted in Christ and by the Spirit to liberate humanity. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's the spirit who liberates us. He actually incorporates us into Christ to the point where our story is his story and his story is our story. His history is our history so that we can say, I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with him. I was raised with him. I was lifted up with him. I was enthroned with him in the heavenly places. To reign in life by Christ Jesus. God acted in Christ to liberate humanity, and not only humanity, here's the scope of this salvation all of creation. Creation's liberation is the subject of Paul's unchained gospel in Romans 8 19 to 26, really. All creation anticipates with groaning the manifestation of the sons of God, which is the glorification of you, the participators in the upward trajectory of Christ, because that is the moment that triggers its liberation to share the glorious freedom of the children of God. This is the gospel unchained. It's unchained as far as its scope It's breadth, it's height, because nothing, whether high or low, things above or things below, things future or things past or things present can separate us from this love of God in Christ Jesus. So again, God acted in Christ. And now the spirit acts to liberate humanity and indeed all of creation from the oppressive and enslaving powers of sin, death, and the flesh, as well as to superhuman principalities and powers. If you're a note taker, here's a tip. Principalities and powers, simply P and P. Principalities and powers. Paul's preaching then was geared toward the turning of the Gentiles or pagans from the power of Satan to God, the supernatural power of Satan to the omnipotent power of God. And this is why he could write to the saints in Colossae and say, Colossians 1.11, my translation, may you be empowered with omnipotence or all power, according to the dominion of his glory for maximum endurance and patience with joy. Maximum endurance and patience with joy, incidentally, in Colossians 1.11, is participation in Messiah's fidelity, which continues in the church. Verse 12, while giving thanks to the Father for having qualified us for a share of the inheritance of the saints in the light, and in Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the jurisdiction of darkness and relocated us in the kingdom of the son of his love. What could we do? He did that. You can't just say, I'm going to leave the jurisdiction of darkness and the superhuman powers that have oppressed me. And I'm going to relocate to the kingdom of God's dear son. No, God did that. A strong filament then, I call it a filament because it's a strong, it's a thread, but it's an unbreakable thread. A strong filament of dikayo terms, that's D-I-K-A-I-O, DeCayo, that's a root word for the word that normally is translated either righteousness in the noun form or justification, somewhat wrongly in most places, in the verbal form. So a strong filament of Dicaio terms runs from Romans 3:24 to 5:1 to 5:18 to 8:30. Romans 3:24 speaks of the all who sinned being justified by grace. And again, if righteousness decaiosune, is God's saving act in Christ, his unconditional saving act in Christ, then justify or dikayao, the verb, has to mean that we are the recipients of that rescue or that deliverance. So really we could, in Paul's case, in the Romans and Galatians, we could mainly translate justifier or as deliverance. Or we could even say liberation. We are liberated, delivered. Saved is another good one as we'll see in Laodiceans, chapter 2, verse 8. So Romans three twenty four, all who sinned are justified by grace or rescued by grace, grounded in an act of God in Christ Jesus called the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, being rescued or delivered unconditionally by the grace of God rooted in the redemptive act of Christ Jesus, says Romans 3.24. And that redemption was wrought, the human race was bought. When that redemption was wrought, humanity was bought. In Romans 5.18, this justification is called life. It's called a rescue that consists of life life is only had when we're out from underneath the jurisdiction of death out from the enslavement of death death as a superhuman power the last enemy to be destroyed will be death according to 1 corinthians 15:26 and as we've studied it in revelation 20:14 It is not a justification that we would call forensic or judicial an imputation of righteousness because Paul equates it with life in Romans 518 justification of life or the deliverance which is life. The Holy Spirit actually creates life. He's called the spirit of life and he creates this life. And so it's not justification that is forensic or judicial. It consists of life from the dead. It consists of our liberation from the oppressive fear of death, for example. It is resurrectional. If we can turn resurrection into an adjective, it is resurrectional, transformational, liberative or liberative and participative. Man was sold into sin and death through the disobedience of the one sir, Adam, S-I-R, single inclusive representative, Adam, the first. And man was bought from sin and death to salvation and life through the obedience of the one sir, single inclusive representative, Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Man was sold into sin and death through disobedience of the sir, Adam, the first and bought from sin and death to salvation and life through the obedience of the one, Sir, Jesus Christ. This obedience is also known as the faithfulness of the Son of God, the faithfulness of Jesus. It's also known as the patience of Christ to endure the cross. So the focus of Paul's gospel is not the individual and his justification when he believes. His focus is communal, all of the human race, and therefore arguably universal, and due to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who reveals God as God and as man. So Romans 3.27, and I'm building up to our passage in Romans 5, and in Ephesians or Laodiceans. If I say Ephesians still because of habit, you know what I'm talking about. Romans, 20, uh, again, 327, the teacher says, where is boasting? Paul says, shut up. The teacher says, shut out, rather, shut up too. He says, in 320, 319, he'll say, shut up to the teacher, basically. Through what sort of Torah? What sort of law? One of works? Paul says, no way, but through a Torah of faithfulness through a teaching that is intensely Christological. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ rules out boasting by any man when it comes to salvation. Now let's look at Ephesians 2.8 also known as because of Colossians 4.16 mainly Laodiceans. Paul said, let the letter, let this letter be read In Laodicea, speaking of Colossians. And then he said, Let the letter that I sent to Laodicea Laodiceans be read in Colossae. Ephesians 2.8, Laodiceans 2.8. For by grace you have been saved. Now, Peter says in Acts 15:11, We know, we believe, that we, as Jews, shall be saved, or are saved. By the grace of our Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus then stands as a synonym to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the extent of death or to his giving of himself. Because he loved us. For by grace you have been saved. That salvation has to do with life as two five goes. If you go back to two five that salvation means you've been made alive while you were dead in sins. You were transferred out of a former condition in which you had radical incapacity most dramatically described as dead in sins. So by grace you have been saved. Listen carefully. Through faithfulness. The word is diapistios. Also used in Romans 3.30. Diapistios. By grace you have been saved, dia pisteos. Dia pisteos. Dia pistios is equal in its dynamic equivalence with ek pisteos, and ek pisteos goes back to Romans one seventeen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ Paul said in 116, for in it the righteousness of God or the saving act of God in Christ is being apocalypto revealed from faithfulness ekpistios to faithfulness from the Messiah's faithfulness to a participation in Messiah's faithfulness on the part of the church those joined to him by the baptism or the incorporation work of the Holy Spirit. Now, ekpistios then, as it is written in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, to illustrate this principle, ekpistios, the righteous one, I'd capitalize R and O there, righteous one, will live because of his faithfulness or by his faithfulness. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. Many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The person, the first person that we must understand as being saved by God out of death, is Jesus. The one who is called the elect one, in Luke twenty-three thirty-five, as well as First Peter one twenty is Jesus Christ. If he is truly God's elect one, and in Jesus Christ all will be made alive, then the election of Jesus Christ means God's election of humanity corporately, collectively, universally. That's a, that maybe takes a step past where Karl Barth was. But we have to stand on the shoulders of those who go before us. For by grace you have been saved, says 2.8. Through faithfulness then, because again, diapistios is equivalent to ekpistios, because in Romans 3.30, Paul takes up on this teacher's quotation of God shows no favoritism in Deuteronomy 10.17. Therefore, he judges the disobedient pagan, And without favoritism, he judges the disobedient Jew. So God's going to have retribution on both. Unless they get circumcised and then fulfill the Torah. And then when they fail, present the proper sacrifices. Paul says, I agree with you that God shows no favoritism. And when he gets to 330 of Romans, he says, because it is ekpistios, by which he saves the Gentiles, and it's diapistios, through which he saves the Jews. It's the same thing. Through the same fidelity, God saves the Jews and the Gentiles, and he makes them one body. There's a great unifying unity theme here. I'm I'm saying all that to say that ekpistios is Christological. It's not anthropological. It's not your faith. It's the faith of the Messiah, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Ekpistios, it's first used in Romans one seventeen, is attributed to the righteous one who lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion. And so, ekpistios is equivalent to diapistios as the means by which pagans and Jews are justified or rescued unconditionally. Therefore, Ephesians 2.8 uses the same phrase, dia pistios. And so we, I choose at this point, unless it can be proven wrong to me, and you've got to go a long ways to do that now. I would render that Christologically. I think we have to render all of our soteriology as a Christology. That's why I said the doctrine of the Israel of God is not an ecclesiological doctrine. It's a Christological doctrine. Same with salvation. It's a Christological doctrine. So we'd have to read it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. Diapistios, and that's Christ's faithfulness. And this is not of yourselves. Does it not say salvation belongs to the Lord in Psalm 3.8? Does it not say deliverance belongs to Yahweh? He's the initiator and finisher of it in Jonah two, six through nine for by grace, you have been saved through faithfulness Christ. And this is not of yourselves. Now you could say, well, does that mean this faithfulness is not of yourselves? It, it, do, it It's true that it's not of ourselves. Now, some people will say, no, he's talking about the gift of salvation is not of yourselves. Well, what's the big deal. What's the difference. So we'll see it in a moment. It is the gift of, of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Boasting is excluded. So this is not a matter of grace is God's part and faith is our part. That's a contract. And that's exactly what A.T. Robertson says. Is one of my exegetical heroes, still is, but on this one point I have to disagree with him. Because he represents the whole justification by faith school. This is not a matter of grace is God's part, which he says in Ephesians 2, eight in word pictures, and faith ours. That we have a part in God's gift other than recipients of it contradicts the principle not of yourselves. Therefore, I believe that when you say grace is God's part, faith is our part, in salvation, you're engaging a particular thing called American Pelagianism. Very subtle. God has winked at this for a while, like Paul said to the pagans on Mars Hill. Up to now, God's winked at all this idolatry but now he's raised someone from the dead who's going to be the means of his judgment of the whole world. God has winked at this justification theory since the reformation and he's preserved Western culture. He's done winking at it. It needs to be radically revital. It has to be radically reformed, transformed. Again, I would say this, Robertson, on Ephesians 2 eight says, "Neuter, not feminine, of the word "taute, T-A-U-T-E tauta. That's the key word, believe it or not, in this. And that, Tauta, not of yourselves." And so he says, it is not neither femi- it is neuter, not feminine, and so it refers not to pistis or to charis." neither faith nor grace, but to the act of being saved by grace, then he says this, conditioned by faith on our part. But the neuter of Tauta, I'm saying, the neuter of this Greek word, Tauta, Tauta, T-A-U-T-E, the neuter, can refer to the whole concept of salvation by grace through faithfulness as one large unit in itself. This salvation by grace and through faithfulness, the whole thing is not of yourselves. It's unconditional. We could say that. This is right where the heart of the argument is right now. That means that the whole thing... is not conditioned on faith on our part. If the neuter of Tauta refers to the act of being saved by grace, conditioned on faith on our part, like he says, then the whole thing is conditioned on faith on our part. Salvation itself. But if this word Tauta refers to the act of being saved by grace, conditioned on nothing from us, but on the faithfulness of Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, then the salvation is unconditional where we are concerned. So, where's the condition? It's nowhere. Nowhere to be found. It's not like, Where's Waldo? Because Waldo's not even in the picture. He's not even in the picture. That would be cruel. Give somebody a Where's Waldo book, and on page 30, look at this, Where's Waldo? And you're laughing and snickering because Waldo's not in the picture. Where do you find the condition? It's not in here. Your assignment is to find the condition that God requires for you to appropriate salvation. Go look for it. And you say, if you go by the, the concert, the regular conventional reading, you'll say, well, it's here, 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 and here. And then everywhere I'd say, no, that's the faithfulness of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ, faithfulness of Christ, faithfulness of Christ. Well, then that's cruel because there is no condition. Bingo. A plus. You're a theologian. So, even if the Tauta, and I'm conceding something in the argument here. You've got to be ready to concede some things. If this word Tauta, which is that, not of yourselves, does not refer to faithfulness, not being of ourselves, and it refers to the salvation being not from ourselves only, the faithfulness is still not from ourselves either. as is verified by, again, dia pistios. Compare it with Romans 3.30, or dia tais pistios, as the Byzantine text, I suspect, has it even co- more correctly. Dia tais pistios means you are saved by grace through the faithfulness, referring to the faithfulness. It is an arthrus noun or an articular noun with the taste Pistios rather than an anarthrous noun with no article. And so it even is stronger in the Byzantine text for by grace, you have been saved. That's the sheer unadulterated unconditional grace of God through the faithfulness, the famous faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which is testified to in the prophets and in the law, the Torah. Moreover, in Laodiceans 2.8, Paul explicitly states, listen carefully, and we'll close by going to Romans 5, he explicitly states that this is the gift from God. So Paul has something to say about the gift in Romans 5.15. Let's look at it. Gonna have to do a whole lot of studying for Sunday because I'm doing a whole lot tonight and I have compassion on you because I know that I'm giving you a lot Romans 515 I took the time to translate this it was maddening to be honest with you this afternoon but here's what it says Romans 515 but the gift is out of all proportion to the transgression for if by the one man's transgression the many and we're gonna we know that we from previous studies that means all We know, for if by the one man's transgression, that's Adam's, the many died, much more. In other words, there's not an equal thing here. There's not an equality. It's all out of proportion. The grace is so far overwhelming. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And that's where people then said, ah, you see, Paul is giving people a license to sin. Which is not only a stupid accusation. But it's a slanderous and blasphemous one. Paul therefore goes in Romans 6.1 all the way to 8.14. In a very rigorous and robust Christian ethic. Which is not found in the forensic contractual construal of the gospel. So then. the gift is all out of proportion to the transgression. For if by the one man's transgression, the many died much more, much more, that's all out of proportion, have the grace of God and the free gift overflowed to the many. In other words, you can't even say that, oh, the gift of God to everyone is just like the transgression that made everyone condemned. No, Paul says it's not even comparable. The gift, he said, The condemnation came through one man's sin. The gift came after trillions of sins were committed by mankind. Then the gift came. Now, I know you're not going to get it right now, but let's just, we got to dig this as far as we can tonight anyways. For if by the one man, Adam's transgression, the many died, much more, much more, a fortiori, the Latin a fortiori have the grace of God and the free gift overflowed to the many, also read as all. And all out of proportion to the one man's sin is the free gift. Because on the one hand, judgment came, resulting in condemnation from one sin. But on the other hand, from many sins came the gift leading to deliverance. Salvation, justification. For if by the transgression of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness, which is salvation in Ephesians 2 8, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? how much more will they be assured of the upward trajectory of enthronement? In other words, so then as through one transgression, there is condemnation to all human beings here. It's explicit. pantas anthropos, all human beings without exception. The only exception being the man, Christ Jesus, who's also a divine person. So also through one righteous act, a synonym for the fidelity of Jesus Christ to the extent of death by crucifixion, one righteous act, his participation in God's act of rescue of mankind. So then, as through one transgression there's a condemnation to all human beings, so also through one righteous act there is life giving deliverance for all human beings. And then 19, for just as through the disobedience of one, the many, the interplay is between many and all here, many means all, were constituted as sinners so through the obedience tais hupakoes obedience a synonym for faithfulness of this righteous one to the extent of death by crucifixion Philippians 2 8 the many or all are constituted as righteous they are the recipients of God's righteous act of rescue via the fidelity of Messiah Jesus therefore To be saved by grace, diapistios, is to be saved by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah. We are saved by unconditional grace, the sheer, unshakable benevolence of God toward mankind. Through the fidelity of Jesus. And by we, I mean the many and by the many Paul means all amen. Thank you father for this opportunity and we pray that you'll continue to allow the Holy spirit to teach us these things because it's not by man's ability to teach or by the students ability to receive, but by my spirit says the Lord that these things can be illuminated to us And therefore have a remarkable and robust impact on our lives transformatively, liberatively, and ethically.